Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter. <laughs> I'm Dan Krawczyk. Yeah, we're here to talk to you today about really, it's not so much a mental model as just uh, some interesting stuff that we think that you might enjoy. And the brain is very complex and investing in markets are very complex. And so when you have complexity, you get oversimplification from various people. And so today's episode is going to be about folklore, various urban legends or phrases have come along over the years to describe both the way our minds work and the way markets work. And we'll try to shed some light on those particular urban legends. Maybe we'll debunk some of them or try to find some of the truth if there is any behind some of these phrases. Yeah, they're often a lot of fun. And a lot of times they'll come around in phrases that are uh, contradictory. One that I love to hear is like, you know, let your winners run and cut your losers short. And then another one is nobody went broke by taking a profit. So, you know, if you look at those two different uh, little uh, suggestive quotes, uh, they seem to contradict one another. What do you think the basis is for, for their prevalence? Oh, people just like to justify their actions. So uh, they'll come up with something. I, the basis for let your winners run and catch your loser short is really a momentum strategy. And there is some efficacy to that. There's some efficacy associated with momentum. And uh, the uh, nobody ever went broke by taking a profit. That notion uh, is just some simple math that people use to justify not really knowing when they want to take a position off. And uh, they know they've made some money and they want to walk away and uh, you know put a winner up on the board. So those are maybe just describing occurrences rather than a coherent strategy. I think that's true to some degree. I think the greatest urban legend of the brain is that we only use 10% of the brain. And there's got to be this 90% that does you know, something incredible, maybe ESP or some kind of seeing to the future. Uh, the 10% myth is really just that. First of all, I don't know how you'd ever quantify how much of the brain we're using uh, because the brain is not a uh, all or nothing sort of organ and it doesn't seem to work by this this capacity. It's, it's just one of those things. It's hard to trace where that originates from. But uh, if you used 100% of the brain's capacity at all times, you would be hallucinating and having seizures because your motor cortex and your visual cortex would all be active <laughs> at once. And if we've learned you know, anything instructive here, it's that brains code information in these uh, little cellular events. Those are linked up in networks and the networks of the brain are highly active even during sleep. So when we're not conscious, our brains are still quite active. And so I don't think we're going to uh, uncover any mystical abilities anytime soon, although the brain is amazing in the things it can do. That's a good one, Dan. Uh, so I guess I'll come with one from uh, the world of investing. Uh, one notion is often that a uh, significant amount of the returns that you see within stocks comes from the state of the market. And while that is true in the short term, the, old, uh, the notion is that a rising tide lifts all boats. 
the reality is, is that the average stock actually significantly, the median stock actually significantly underperforms the average. There's a uh, old saying that a man can drown in a stream that on average is only three feet high. And in the market, it's the same way. Most of the returns that we see in the market come from the top decile of, of stocks. Uh, those tend to massively outweigh the, uh, the median performance of stocks. And I believe there are a number of studies they show some, somewhere around a 45% underperformance for the median stock uh, and those below it relative to uh, the average stock. So the old uh, notion that a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard uh, can outperform a lot of investment professionals. Well, perhaps that's true, but there's a very high probability that the monkey will also massively underperform the index itself because he won't have his darts hit that 10 percentile of uh, stocks that really create a huge amount of outperformance. Wow, that's, that's one you don't hear often. I think a lot of people wouldn't, that's not intuitive. Yeah, no, and it's something that I did not learn early in my investment career. I, I, saw, I learned it over time after reading a number of different reports that gave some dynamics associated with historical performance of the market. And that's probably because you're an analytical thinker, which makes you a right-brain thinker. Uh-oh, here we or go. Or maybe a left-brain thinker. <laughs> <laughs> so the classic folklore is that the right side is creative and artistic and the left side is somehow calculating uh, like an engineer uses the left brain and an artist uses the right brain. Uh, this grows out of a uh, series of studies where they would do split brain operations. So the, the 20th century was an interesting time in neurosurgery. It was a lot about cutting things out and uh, basically damaging the brain in a variety of ways. Split brain surgeries were to control epileptic seizures from crossing over from one hemisphere to the other. They usually arise on one side and it would go into a grand mal seizure if it crosses over. So the, the uh, neurosurgeons would cut the uh, central corpus callosum, disconnecting the hemispheres. And there were interesting differences that would come out of that behavior, but I think it started to snowball and get oversold that the right had a totally different style than the left. Um, the realities of it is in a uh, healthy brain, there's tremendous information sharing at all times, and a hemisphere doesn't make a very good unit of processing. The brain does have some level of specialization, but it's nowhere near as blunt as right brain, left brain. Uh, that said, I did have my math teacher in high school say that I was probably a right brain thinker, which is not really what you, maybe your art teacher should be saying that, but it was not a compliment. But I do enjoy debunking that little myth maybe in part because of that little personal history with it. Oh, maybe they're just trying to tell you you're super creative and your math, mathematical ability. I was almost like Einstein, right? I was just thinking so far outside the box. I'm go. sure that's what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, another thing I'll talk about as far as uh, urban legend or at least some nomenclature that we tend to use in investing that may be somewhat misplaced is the notion of growth and value stocks. Now, Growth stocks are typically defined uh, as being those stocks that have very high rates of revenue growth, and in certain circumstances, they have no profitability at all. 
uh, and then value stocks are those stocks that have very high earnings but no significant amount of growth. And it's really a uh, misnomer because if you think about it, value for all stocks is basically the collective lifetime uh, present value of the future cash flows of the business. So if the, there's a significant amount of revenue growth that eventually translates into profit growth, and we think about when that profit is realized, and then we discount all of the profits of the business back down to the present day, uh, and that gives us some sort of a, an absolute value. Uh, so largely, you can, ha you can have situations where a growth stock uh, is both growing and quite a value. Though some often, when you see these stocks, they're priced in such a way where the value that you're going to realize is very far into the future. Uh, so uh, it they tend to be very uh, speculative because you're making certain assumptions about profitability in the future and assuming that it's growing because of a large market opportunity, it tends to invite additional competition. So uh, I think that uh, and, and there's often there's often a lot of investment that's made based off of this separation. Like I want to make an investment in the value factor or I want to make an investment into the growth factor. Sometimes I think that those distinctions are really not appropriate when we're thinking about the absolute value of a business. So it's maybe oversimplifying things and kind of miscategorizing with too broad a brushstroke. It's yeah, it seems like it's it, that 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 is the case. I mean, we can talk, definitely talk about the dynamics of a business and its industry uh, as being one that has stagnant growth. Uh, we can talk about uh, the uh, profitability of an individual business uh, as basically you know not having a significant amount of profitability today. But once they reach a certain degree of market penetration, then you get a certain amount of operational leverage and then it will create its value. Uh, one of the things I think that is captured, though, by the notion of value versus growth is uh, value stocks tend to have a greater degree of certainty because they're, uh, when people look at a company that has a high current earnings yield uh, that is not perhaps growing as much, you have at least some sense as to what the earnings power is, whereas with a company that has a significant amount of revenue growth where the discounted future cash flows is where you're going to find most of your value, it's a little bit harder for you to be able to look into the future and know that they're competitively positioned in such a way where they're actually going to have you know, the profitability that is priced into the stock at the current multiple that it trades at. It really pays to think that one through. It does. Another brain myth is that uh, emotion and reason are enemies. And this is kind of, uh, I guess I think of Star Trek, where uh, you sort of had Mr. Spock was this logical, rational, reasoning alien. And uh, I believe McCoy was the doctor who was famously emotional. And so Captain Kirk, who is kind of like the frontal lobes of our brain, would have to sort between the emotion of McCoy and Spock's reason. The reality of it is, is that emotion and reason work together. We uh, experience emotions with, uh, while they're somewhat segregated in certain brain areas, they have an impact across the cortex. So when something's particularly emotionally impacting, 
it moves us to a higher state of attention, a higher state of arousal. In some sense, our, our senses are heightened. And so uh, we will reason differently sort of in concert with our emotion. Um, and it's not as straightforward as that the two are always working at, at odds. Uh, one of the really interesting studies that I think is enlightening here was um, some work on frontal lobe stroke patients where they had these uh, sort of disconnections between some of their emotional circuitry and their their frontal cortex. And what would tend to happen is that uh, they wouldn't have quite as much emotional guidance. And so they'd make poor financial decisions in daily life. But in lab-based tasks, they were perfectly good at a lot of the memory and even the uh, intelligence type tests they would be given. So these capacities um, really aren't that separable and they're more intertwined than we often think. Yeah, it's interesting. If you think about every action we take, there's got to be some sort of an emotion, no matter how rational the action is, that is underlying the action that's being taken. You know, you're doing something for some emotional, you know, premise that's there to satisfy, satisfy some sort of a either biological or genetic directive that you have, uh, or you know, you just simply want to do something. You know, why would you even get out of bed if you're Spock? Yeah, emotion-free information tends to be immensely boring. So <laughs> we're not going to engage our powers of reasoning very often to uh, to ponder those uh, very uninteresting things. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave uh, with uh, my final uh, myth, and uh, that is the notion that short selling is just the inverse of uh, buying uh, a stock for a long investment. Uh, that uh, you just basically use the criteria that you would use for something you want to invest in uh, and uh, flip it on its head and use the reverse to be able to find shorts. Short selling and long investing are extremely different. Uh, there are a number of different strategies that can be applied in selling companies short. And we at, uh, at my shop, SaberPoint, we have three different strategies that we use. Uh, one, it is an inverse strategy relative to a, a long type of investing called uh, what we call value worth catalyst, where you find something that's quite expensive and then you find some sort of catalyst that's going to cause uh, the market to recognize uh, that there's a big disconnect between the intrinsic value of the investment and the actual market price. But then there are others, like for instance, just a low company, low quality company strategy where uh, the business is just deteriorating over time. Uh, maybe you can think of a lot of retailers or restaurants that are no longer fashionable, uh, where they're just not likely to be able to pull out of the tailspin once the momentum has started to go against them and the financial conditions to continue to deteriorate often on a very levered balance sheet or even a financial fraud. But in each of those instances, typically your time frame is much shorter. In a long investment, in most instances, you're going to go and have a much longer time frame, in many cases, many years, in which you may try to compound value. Uh, whereas on the short side, you're often looking for uh, a distinct catalyst or event uh, that will cause you to make your profits relatively quickly and then you turn over the portfolio and you find yet another. You know, that perhaps in itself is a bit of an oversimplification. I do know some short sellers that'll find companies that are on the brink of failure. They'll stay short 
all the way up and until uh, bankruptcy is declared, because that way they can defer any tax realization. Uh, and uh, they can just basically leave it at pennies within the books. And many, many moons ago, some of them would just let it go to bankruptcy and they'd never have to pay any taxes whatsoever. Wow, that's a much more complicated topic than it would appear on the face of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll close out with one final uh, sort of colorful urban legend about the brain. We mentioned Einstein a little while ago, and I'm prompted to think of this story of whatever happened to Einstein's brain. And there's some notion that Einstein had maybe an extra lobe that enabled him to, you know, achieve these remarkable insights. Uh, what actually happened after Einstein passed away, there was a neuroanatomist of the day who was, who did get his brain uh, for study. And he was kind of known to have it. And he was hoarding the Einstein brain, like he wouldn't let anyone else study it. And so his solution to this was to cut up Einstein's brain into small ice cube sized chunks and mail them around the world to other neuroanatomists of the day. And so uh, I happened to take neuroanatomy years ago from a very esteemed uh, neuroanatomist named Arnie Scheibel, and Scheibel was able to analyze one of those chunks of Einstein's brain from his parietal lobe, which is involved in mathematical calculation. Uh, there was no extra lobe here, but there was an interesting result that came out of it. He counted the number of neurons or electrically active cells in the brain relative to the glial cells, which are the support cells. And Einstein actually had more glial cells than average in this one chunk of brain. So at the microstructural level, there seemed to be some difference uh, in Einstein that translated maybe into these remarkable insights. But what a weird roundabout story that is, that uh, the Einstein brain was divided up. And I think it was kind of lost to history because so many of the little chunks uh, kind of dissipated and were lost. So if you happen upon a jar with a mysterious little chunk of gray matter, might even be a little bit of Einstein. Uh, so does every neuroscientist hope that one day their brain can be chunked and distributed to other neurosciences around the world so it's the, they're analyzed for their complexity? Yes, that's the dream, George. Uh, we can only hope and aspire to having that ceremonial thing happen, but uh, you're going to have to probably uh, make some pretty big Nobel Prize human history changing achievements to warrant that level of interest in your brain. All right. Well, that sounds good. I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Okay. Remember to visit mentalmodels.com, uh, the website, uh, for show notes and more information about different episodes. And uh, we will be thinking about markets and our brains. Yeah, no doubt. And while you're at it, please like and comment uh, on the uh, podcast venue that uh, you're actually accessing us through. Send us any urban legends you want us to try and debunk. Yeah, no doubt. We'll definitely address them. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. 
please subscribe and thank you for listening.